their stories being told by people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. Welcome to Lie Patrol, an edutainment podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history and mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, we hope you learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or in the drunk tank to astound your family, friends, or the other naked guy. The headlines are ear-catching, that can't be true, factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week, there will be two little lies thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. My name is Brenna. And I'm Michael. The topic this week is? Uh, financial institution? Money institutions? Banks? I hope it's banks. It's some... It's it's it, the answer somewhere in there. He just makes up whatever he wants at yeah, this I point, don't know. I guess. He we tells kinda, me we talk it's about banks, it. and then he goes off and does, hmm, I guess it's kind of this, because that's what I want to do. It's close enough. And I'm over here scrounging together stories. Yeah, I have... Bad news. One of mine isn't really a story more than it is a fun oddity, but, uh... Well, I have bad news about all of my stories. None of them have to do with the real criminal empire, the banks. <laughs> okay, well... I don't know what to use with that information. Well, they're about banks. There's banks in them. Oh, okay. But we're not gonna be... I'm not going to be covering any of the uh, insidious stuff that banks do. Okay. I don't think I can say the same. Good. That's what I wanted. <laughs> you can rewrite the terms for your credit card. President Eisenhower was the inspiration for the 1983 film Trading Places. Uh. The infinite money glitch. The trillion dollar coin. <laughs> okay. Touche. Touche. <laughs> okay, good. Good, good, good. See, I'm glad uh, you've done really good at writing your headlines. And yes, you've pulled some wool over my eyes. Uh, so now if you could just tell me which one of those is not true. So that... Like, good job. You did great. But um, yeah, now's the time where you can... We don't have to do the same. Or you could just tell me which one. No? No? Not gonna... Okay. You're gonna make me do the whole thing, huh? Yep. Oh, Okay. I see how it is. I see how it is. Okay. <laughs> is it... Uh, let's see. Um, is... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> God, I love money glitches. But I feel like Eisenhower probably... You know... <sighs> Trading Spaces is the one with Dan Aykroyd and... I will give you that. Yes, that is the okay. film. Okay, I'm just trying to remember the film because yeah. do you remember we watched the movie together and then I said, I've never seen that movie. And he stared at me and was like, we literally watched it together. And I was like, oh, we must have watched it. <laughs> and so I have this thing where I have to remember I've seen Trading Spaces. Um, I'm just going to go with that one because this is a movie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> President Eisenhower was the inspiration for the 1983 film Trading Places. I feel like we say we're not a movie podcast every episode, but <laughs> movies seem to pervade our zeitgeist quite thoroughly. So here we go. 
<laughs> it's almost like art. What's the thing? Art life? Life art? Yeah. Life imitates art? No, mm, I don't know. Life uh, art? I don't know if it's that. <laughs> I don't think you could just pull this really cool quote right out of the air like that, Michael. So, as you said, Trading Places is the 1983 film starring Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. In the movie, the Duke brothers own a commodities trading firm. They make a bet with each other over nature versus nurture and decide to replace one of their traders, Dan Aykroyd, with Eddie Murphy, who is a vagrant living on the streets. Unimportant to my story, really. The important part is that the Duke brothers own and operate a commodities trading firm. Some background on stocks and commodities trading. Stocks and commodities can be bet on, and for your explanation, you either buy long or sell short. Would you care to explain what either of those are? When you buy long... It's when you go to the Wiener Schnitzel and you get a foot long. When you buy short, it's when you go to the Wiener Schnitzel and you get those tiny little mini guys. Buying long is betting that the price will increase. Oh. And selling short is betting that the price will decrease. Of course. I, that's what I said. You're, you're talking about inflation and deflation. Mm, <laughs> it's all hot dogs to me. Anyways. For buying long, because the price of the stock or commodity can go to infinity, the profits can also go to infinity. And the downside? Well, if the stock or commodity price goes to zero, you would lose your initial investment. For selling short, you're hoping that the price goes to zero. But you'll only be able to profit on your initial sell minus the current price. So at zero, it's your initial sell price. The downside is that since the stock price can go to infinity, your losses can also be infinite. Whee! Infinite anti-money glitch! Futures are exactly what they sound like. It's betting on whether the price of something will increase or decrease in the future. And now that we have our stock market basics, let's go back to the movie. In it, the Duke brothers almost exclusively made bets on pork and orange juice concentrate futures. Woo! That's gonna work. And that was a lot of exposition. Do you have any questions? Um, let's see. Pork and orange juice. I bet you could actually make those into something, but they were, on, they were going short or long on the futures. I don't recall. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie, so um, I'm not... Because, honestly, I bet they go hand in hand. I bet people who buy a lot of pork buy a lot of orange juice. So, if you're going to do both, you might as well do both. There. Investment... This is investment advice. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's not. This is not investment advice. Not financial advice. Not financial advice at all. Don't have to do this. Maybe we should have said that at the beginning. Anyways. (laughs) Well, I didn't know you were going to talk about stonks. Onions made up 20% of the commodities trading in 1955 at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Back then, all trading was done with pencil and paper, and the only way to verify trades was through the paper trail. This seems like it's ripe for collusion and insider trading. Enter Sam Siegel and Vincent Kosuga, two traders in the CME. They began buying long any and all onion futures. Within a few months, they had bought contracts for nearly 30 million pounds of onions, over 98% of the onions slated for Chicago. I remember this, the onion people. They inspired some idiots. It was at this point that the pair started selling short the onion futures, while simultaneously selling all of their long onion contracts, causing a huge increase in supply, making the price tank. In August 1955, the going rate for a 50-pound bag of onions was $2.75. In March 1956, the price per bag was a paltry 10 cents. Wow. The pair- well, oh. just, um, so, it wasn't just cutting the onions that would make you cry, right? It's now the... It's the fact that people lost jobs because 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, you're crying about onions for more reasons now. Haha. Okay, ruin my jokes. Whatever. The pair had made millions through their market manipulation. Onions were basically worthless in Chicago and nearly impossible to find anywhere else in the U.S. Many onion producers started going out of business, so they begged Congress to step in and help out. Oh my god. What did, what did this do to Outback Steakhouse? How are you supposed to be getting them those bloomin' onions? <laughs> Gerald Ford, who at the time was a representative from Michigan, sponsored a bill outlawing the trading of onion futures. The hope was that the behavior of Siegel and Kosuga would not happen again. The Commodities Trading Lobby obviously opposed the bill, threatening lawsuits if the bill was signed into law. In 1958, President Eisenhower signed the Onion Futures Act. In response, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange sued and lost. The trading of onion futures has been illegal ever since. Oh my god. <laughs> so That's okay, guys, because you can still trade on gourd futures. <laughs> Ornamental gourd futures. <laughs> so how does trading spaces fit into all this? Well, the Mercantile Exchange needed to find another way to make money off of the trading of futures. So they expanded the amount of commodities that could be traded. The two biggest inclusions... Oh, orange juice and pork. Orange juice concentrate. Uh, and, and finally pork. remembered something important. So this is the lie. While President Eisenhower oh my God. was the butterfly that flapped its wings in order for trading places to get made, he's not the inspiration for the film. <laughs> I love that look. Everyone hated that. You took us on this whole ride. You made... You... You... Uh, you made me... <sighs> uh. Anyways. Well... Let's do the infinite money glitch. Hey, no, I get to choose which one. Please do the infinite money glitch. <laughs> well, now that you really want it, I don't think I want to. Yeah, obviously I want to listen to the Good, infinite money glitch. Because the credit card one's a lot better of a story. <laughs> <laughs> so, the trillion dollar coin seems like a new novel idea to remove the debt ceiling, but this idea has actually been around since about 2011. The which coin? The oh, the trillion, trillion dollar, dollar coin. coin. So you're talking about a coin worth a trillion dollars? Yes. Is it made from, like, uh, I don't know, the skull pieces of Caligula or something? No, just platinum. Oh. So it's not really worth a trillion dollars, is it? Is a $100 bill really worth $100? Yeah, it has the word $100 on it. Okay. God, come on. <laughs> Anyways, how does the treasury work? Money go in, money come out. Well, no, 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 no. Money only come out. Money just print and print and print. No, money come in too. A little bit of money come in. Most money just go flying out, never coming back. Okay. Imagine you want to start your own economy from scratch. How would you go about doing it? Well, the first thing you want to do is establish a pea corner. And, uh... <laughs> how, Michael? How would I want to do this? Well, you need a government first, so... Let's move past those specifics. Now that you've got your government, can you just decree money into existence? Yes. No. Well, okay, there has to be the value. You have to add value to nothing. I mean, yeah, you technically you could just But technically, poof money. you do still technically poof money. But you know that won't actually work. Because a monetary unit you just invent out of nothing has no value. It's not backed by anything. Everybody has to agree that this $1 is worth this one ornamental gourd. Yeah. Money can't be made from nothing. Looking at you, the Zimbabwean dollar. <laughs> Why are you so mean to that dollar? Because I can get... I'm not going to tell you what's in my bank account, but I could get a few quadrillion Zimbabwean dollars right now with the conversion rate. Michael, we could be quadrillionaires. In worthless money, yeah. 
there's no such thing as worthless money. I've been told money is the most important thing. Okay, continue, sir. Okay. Instead, Leave Zimbabwe dollars out of this. <laughs> instead, you establish for yourself two institutions. One a part of the government and one entirely separate. The first institution is the treasury, which is part of the government that has the legal authority to buy and sell things and to issue securities called bonds. The other institution... Wait, 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 wait. James Bonds. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> the other institution you create is a central bank. The central bank is established by the government and has a special power. It can create and destroy money. Literally out of nothing. The central bank is the one institution in your economy that can say, Poof! Money now exists. Told you! So now you have an institution that can buy and sell, the treasury, and an institution that can create money, the central bank. But you haven't made any money yet. So you aren't done. The next step in your easy bake oven economy is to have your treasury issue a series of bonds. A bond is a financial instrument that works under certain rules. The rules that matter here are that a bond is created on a certain date with certain face value, sold for less than that face value, then redeemed on a specific future date at the face value. Uh, it basically It's an investment, basically. Oh, is that how those work? So we'll imagine you order your treasury to issue a bond today with a face value of $100 and offer it for sale for 90 and give it a maturity date of one year. Of course, nobody has money, so no one can buy that bond. Which means So your economy crumbles which, over James Bond? Which means that the bond you're trying to sell just sits there. Until the old guy in the suit you appointed to run your central bank wakes up and realizes that he can buy it. Wait. If, if nobody can afford bonds because money's not real yet, how did he get that suit? He has the power to create money on nothing. So he does. He fiats, as the term goes... $90 into existence, gives it to you, takes the bond in return. Now your treasury has $90 in it, which means you can hire some of your broke citizens to start building a road or whatever you want, a, a statue to yourself. It doesn't really matter. That would be a great way to use resources in the beginning of an economy. Impoverished citizen number two takes his first week's pay and deposits it into a bank, which now has a lending reserve, and lends it out, thus creating more money. And that cycle continues and continues and continues and that leads to a discussion on fractional reserve lending uh, but that I don't care about that right now so look it up if you're interested otherwise now you've now started your new economy the central bank created a small amount of money bought your sovereign bonds with it that money went into circulation and it spiraled around and around the fractional reserve banking system creating more money capital is now freely available industry is booming wealth is being created and everything's just fine except it's been a year, and your government is in debt. The bonds that you sold to the central bank are coming due. You're going to have to buy them back, repaying the debt you took on when you started the economy. And you have no money to do it. Do that with. What do you do? Wait. I thought you did. Didn't you just make the money? Just make more. No, because the treasury owes money to the central bank. But the, the central treasure, the treasury bank can't. is the one that makes the money, though. Yeah, but why would the central bank make more money when they're, they have... They have money out that the treasury needs to repay. Why is right. why is the central bank going to just hand money to the if treasury? If the treasury doesn't pay back to the central bank that money that the central bank poofed out of nowhere, how is the central bank going to be able to pay bonuses to its top uh, CEOs and stuff? That's exactly right. You issue a new round of bonds. <laughs> you sell them just like you sold the last round to anyone with money. Except last time, the only entity in the whole economy that had any money was the central bank. Well, this time, a lot of people had money. Some people with money want a way to store it for the long term. 
so they're more than happy to exchange their money for a bond and sell that bond later and turn it back into spendable cash. So all you have to do is issue a new round of bonds, cash flows into the treasury, and when the central bank comes calling to have its bonds redeemed, use your new cash to buy, buy back the first ones. Except now the central bank has money, which it doesn't need or want. The central bank has no need for money, and money sitting on account at central bank isn't doing anything useful. Okay, so the central bank doesn't need money, doesn't want it, because they make it, but they still require the treasury to pay them back? Mm. Because they're guaranteeing the money. Yeah. That's how, that's how, that's how value is created. I think that's rude. <laughs> that's not neighborly. So the central bank turns around and knocks on your door and says, hey, got, do you have any bonds you want to sell? Which returns us to the normal condition again. The central bank holds bonds, which back money, and the actual money those bonds back circulates through the economy. Okay. So, yeah, what was this about? <laughs> Let's move on to the debt ceiling. Congress votes on how much the U.S. can spend, or to put simply, how many bonds can be sold. The Treasury still needs to pay for public goods, government, personnel, etc., but there's no more money coming in. While the debt continues to rack up and gets closer to the debt ceiling, the U.S. gets closer to defaulting on its payment obligations, because no money's coming in. This causes interest rates to increase and makes money more expensive to loan. So, finally, on to the, the infinite money glitch. In 1997, Congress passed a law, which was amended in 2000, that allows the U.S. Treasury to mint its own platinum coins. These are the memorial coins, or the dollar coins that were famously used in many cashback and airline system, quote, abuses. <laughs> Do you catch that? Airlines? The Treasury can't create its own oh. currency, except for this one loophole. Oh, no. And it gets weirder. Because the loophole doesn't have an upper limit to how big of a denomination the Treasury can mint. Okay, so the thought process is, the Treasury is running out of money to pay down debt. The Treasury can mint coins in any value. Ergo, the Treasury mints a trillion dollar coin to raise the debt ceiling by a trillion dollars. Whee! So where's the catch? Um, it just costs too much to make a trillion dollar coin. I bet it costs less than a few hundred dollars. Obviously it does. <laughs> it does not cost a hundred dollars to make a hundred dollar bill. Well, the idea has been floated on and off since about 2011, but has never really got off the ground. There's no legal precedent for it. While it would technically be legal for the Treasury to do this, it's never happened, so it's anyone's guess to how it would be viewed legally. The biggest issue would be the inflation that arrives with the new coin. Injecting a trillion dollars into the economy without selling bonds to offset it injects more cash without balancing the other side of the equation. This is where the legal precedent would be challenged. If an investor could prove that the U.S. not defaulting on its debt or prove that the inflation negatively impacted the value of their portfolio, they might have legal ground to sue for loss, loss of uh, compensation. Okay. So that's the trillion dollar coin is the treasury's get out of jail free card. Um. Uh, well, there we go then. Yeah, that so was that was very dry. <laughs> how do I get that one? How do I get one of those? I don't know, but someone should definitely make a heist movie in a theoretical <laughs> world where they they, they made a trillion dollar coin. <laughs> just just is there still the one coin? <laughs> like uh, like stealing the one one like, jewel. Like Ocean's fourteen should be. Stealing the trillion dollar stealing coin. Stealing the trillion dollar coin. Or, and then finding out it actually doesn't, it's not worth anything. Yeah, because, I mean, what bank's going to take that? Yeah. <laughs> well, they're going to accidentally drop it somewhere, and some guy's going to pick it up and throw it away because it looks like Monopoly money. <laughs> Don't throw away your Monopoly money. One day that will be currency, okay? You can... Buy, invest in Monopoly games now. Go buy up as many as you can, because one day that money in there will be worth something. <laughs> 
And we all collapse, and the only thing everybody has in common is they have a copy of Monopoly, the board game. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes? You can rewrite the terms for your credit card. Oh. At least, hey, I have a feeling that, as nice as this sounds, it's not actually going to be that good. Is this going to be, not good, I mean, it's going to probably be negative somehow. No, this is, actually, this is actually my most fun story this week. Oh, good, thank goodness, because yours are downers. <laughs> when you click OK on accepting the terms and conditions of whatever you have terms and conditions for, do you really ever read them? What? What? I have eyes. Yeah, me neither. So I'm not going to use them. <laughs> There's somewhat of a legal precedence that those uh, agreements are unenforceable if they are written in too much legalese speak. Yeah, I've heard that. So I choose not to read them. Mm-hmm. Because what if they try to come back at me? I'm not a lawyer. Exactly. If it ever comes up, I'll just say, I never took the bar exam. Yeah. <laughs> I've passed many bars on the street, even though I wanted to go in and get a drink. <laughs> Getting slightly back on topic, those contracts are two-way street. Dmitry Ardikov received a piece of junk mail one day. It was from Tinkoff Bank with a credit card offer. It seemed like not a bad offer to the Russian man. 12.9% interest with relatively good credit limits. Until Ardikov read the fine print, the actual inf- interest rate was closer to 45%. Oh. Normally, what any sane person would do is throw the offer out because it's just not worth it. That's insane. To Ardikov, it was an opportunity. Ah, lawsuit. Ardikov set to scanning all of the documents into his computer. Then he got to work changing the fine print to be more favorable. How does 0% interest sound? No fees? (laughs) How about a card termination fee of $70,000? All things that Ardikov changed in his version of the terms and conditions. Additionally, he updated the website where the terms and conditions could be found to a website he purchased that resembled the bank's website and name. He printed out the better terms, signed, dated, and then sent them off, not thinking he'd ever get a response. To his dismay, all the paperwork and a new credit card appeared in the mail a few weeks later. (laughs) He didn't go overboard with the card. He just kind of used it how a normal person uses credit. Small purchases. Nothing expensive or extravagant. A few years go by, and Ardikov gets a bit behind paying his credit card bill. No worries, he thought, because of the terms they'd agreed to, except the bank wanted to terminate his card and charge Ardikov around $1,400 in unpaid charges and fees. Hmm. So Ardikov took Tinkov Bank to court over the matters. Ardikov went into the court battle with only the updated terms and conditions that were signed and dated by both parties. In a twist so good Larry David couldn't write, The bank argued that they hadn't read the fine print to the agreement and therefore shouldn't be held responsible to the terms. And they wanted the contract invalidated. (laughs) The judge ruled that because the agreement was signed by both parties, it was an enforceable contract. Arikov was forced to pay about $600 in charges that he hadn't paid, but was able to get all the late fees removed. But we're not done there. Oh no. Arikov decided to countersue for over $700,000. This was due to Tinkoff Bank not following eight stipulations in the contract, including terminating Ardikov's card without paying the $70,000 termination fee. Nice. It got weird when the chairman of Tinkoff Bank, Oleg Tinkoff, wrote on Twitter, Nobody will win anything from us. <laughs> oh, that's not good. You're not supposed to say that. The matter was eventually settled outside of court for an undisclosed amount of money. Ardikov quipped, This started as a joke in 2008, but the joke has gone too far. And this story took kind of a weird turn as I was researching Oleg Tinkoff. So Tinkoff renounced his American citizenship in 2013 in order to reduce his tax bill. 
U.S. passport holders must pay an exit tax to the IRS when they renounce their citizenship. It's unclear how much of this Tinkoff did not pay, but it was enough to cause an issue while he was living in the U.K. He paid $20 million to the U.K. in order to not be extradited to the USA for tax fraud. Oh my god. The terms he was given by the U.K. were that he had to give up his passports, needed to follow a 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. curfew, check in with his parole officer three times a week, and he can only move about in the greater London area and is unable to go to any airports. So I don't know where that leaves us. What? That doesn't sound like a good deal at all. Uh, In order to not be extradited and go to big boy IRS prison? I don't understand. How much was the tax he was going to have to pay to be, you know, Uh, to leave? He's he's close to a billionaire, if not multi-billionaire. Oh my god. So I guess that's worth just a little bit of money you would have had to pay? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so huh. you can rewrite the terms to your credit card. I a- guess agreement. you can. Or one can. One can. <laughs> one can. <laughs> maybe not you, maybe not me. But one, one can. can. <laughs> well, that was that was uh, joyful. That was, that's that's the word I'd use for it. <laughs> Are you ready for this? Hit me with your three best shots. <laughs> okay, uh to as I planned, juxtapose his uh, very serious stories. Well, I mean, I have a bunch. I have a bunch of fluff. <laughs> All right. Number one, nine-year-old convicted of robbing bank with toy gun. Uh, nine-year-old. Uh, repeat that. Nine-year-old convicted of robbing bank with toy gun. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, okay. Number two. Man buys bank after being told they would not validate his parking ticket. Okay. Number three. Utah bank built from bricks sent through mail to save on freight costs. So, shoot. So the third one is the bank was sent through the mail in order to save on shipping costs. Sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that one's true. But the problem is, I think the other two are true as well. The, oh no, I did it. I did the, all three stories true. Oh, oh darn. The first one is the one I'm iffiest on. And the second one was She did a shake. The second one was Oh, man buys bank after being told they would not validate his god, parking ticket. I feel like that one's true too because I think I read that somewhere. Oh god. Uh start with the start with the bank brick one. Okay. Because I, I, what I think happened was, uh, is they wanted to move the bank, but it was, it was a brick bank and it didn't make sense to like pick up the building all at once. So <laughs> like with a helicopter or like, no, well, you, you, you take the foundation and you put it on hydraulic rams. And... Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. You're yeah, laughing that's at probably it. You're laughing at me like this isn't true. <laughs> I don't know what you're on about, but do you want to hear the story? Yeah. Good, because I want to tell the story. Okay, Utah Bank built from bricks sent through mail to save on freight costs. Many references to this story kind of blow it out of proportion a bit, so I'm going to use the United States Postal Service's account of this story, mostly because it makes the most sense. So that's the only source on this, is the United States Postal Service. (laughs) The logistics of the U.S. mail system is kind of crazy, and luckily most of us can send and receive packages without ever thinking about what it actually takes to get a physical item from one place to the other. Yes, we live in the lap of luxury where we don't really need to know 
how that vintage Pee Wee Herman action figure you had been outbidding six other fans for traveled from Weed, California to your secret collector bunker in Toad Suck, Arkansas. It's not an action figure. It's a collectible. <laughs> you say that, <laughs> and you say that every time I bring it up. <laughs> but it's not always easy to get everyone's mail to everyone, and in the early 1900s, that was even more true than today. So when William Horace Coltharp decided he wanted to build a new building for the Vernal, Utah Bank of Vernal in 1916, he had to figure out the best course of action for getting the desired materials to Vernal. Why is that? Well, Vernal is kind of like way out there, like all the way over in that eastern part of Utah where someone decided to take a big rectangular chunk out of the top. Like it's in the middle of nowhere. A place where even though it is far from Salt Lake City, Salt Lake is still the closest thing on all sides, <laughs> at least in 1916. When it came to mail, Vernal is technically only 125 miles away from Salt Lake, air quotes, as the crow flies. <laughs> However, unlike today where you have multiple driving routes to Vernal with the shortest spanning about 173 miles, the route was not so easy back then. You know, because you have to like, I don't know. Hop on a mule. No, <laughs> but it is mountainous. It's very mountainous, and there was no roads. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the that's the problem. It was mountainous, no roads, the railroad, very far. <laughs> Not near. <laughs> I don't know why there was a town there, but there was. <laughs> to actually get to Vernal from SLC, because I'm full now, yeah. and I'm not going to say Salt Lake State this whole time. Yeah, well, that's a good call. <laughs> Mail road on two railroads through Matt, Colorado, to Watson, Utah, and then a truck service operated by Uintah Railroad Company, Railway Company, my bad, would then take the mail the last 54 miles of the trip. So that's a lot. Can I stop you right there? Is that how you say that? I yeah. always thought it was Unta. Unta? I don't know. I say Uintah because it sounds cool. That sounds way better. Anyway, I didn't actually look up. Oh, okay, But good. there's an entire, it's a, it's a, there's a whole reservation <laughs> yes, there, there and is. everything. I don't know how to say it, but Unta or Uintah, it's all cool. Okay. <laughs> I, I've, Sorry, I thought I thought you heard it said somewhere. No, I probably should have had the little pronunciation. <laughs> hey guys, guess what? <laughs> if we messed that up. I'm probably gonna sorry. mess that up, and I'm really, really sorry. It's cool, whichever way it said. They both sound really good. I'm gonna say Unta now. No, say Unta. Unta. That's probably closer what it is. Well, I haven't even been to Utah, so I would go from a pass. person who has I, been to Utah. It, no. Okay, well, I want to. Yeah, you don't want to be responsible for this now. <laughs> okay, anyways. So, it goes one train, second train, and then truck service. So, that's the, the route you have to take. And it's over, uh, like, what was it, like 400 miles? Anyways. <laughs> now, packages, or parcel post, as it was called when the postal service started accepting packages in 1913, had a weight limit. That's another thing we don't think about. They didn't always, like, you could send a piece of mail up to four pounds, but in 1913, they finally was like, hmm, we can take something at 11 pounds. Yeah, you can fit six, seven bricks in a flat rate box now. <laughs> we, yeah, it's 70 pounds now, I think. Oh, really? <laughs> when first introduced, packages up to 11 pounds were able to be sent via USPS, but as the service grew in popularity, so did the acceptable weight of parcel post. In 1916, that limit was 50 pounds. So back to our bank building dilemma. At that time, there were technically private companies who would deliver large shipments to Vernal via freight or by private truck. However, they were very expensive, compared to the 54 cents per 50-pound package the U.S. Postal Service would charge. 
So I guess it's not really surprising that the director of a bank would be money conscious, and as it turned out, he did not need all of the materials to sent to Vernal, as he planned to use cheap local fired bricks for the majority of the building. So when they say in the story an entire building was sent, it was not. <laughs> Don't tell me this is the lie because of a technicality. But man, he was really itching for some nice pressed bricks to use for the bank's facade. And unfortunately, they had to come from the Salt Lake Pressed Brick Company. That's really hard to say. <laughs> we'll go with it. <laughs> so yeah, he had the bricks shipped through the post office. How many bricks? Well, how many do you think? A facade? I don't know. Like maybe a thousand? Only 15,000. Oh. I was going to say 15 grand. That's not a... You don't that's, a that. that's a small room. Technically, that's part of the bank. That's the entire bank, probably. I didn't say the entire bank in oh, okay. my thing. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, no, this is already probably getting true. You could probably tell. <laughs> <laughs> According to John V. Calhoun of the company, they filled 1,500 crates with 10 bricks each to meet the max weight of 50 pounds per package. In all, the bricks weighed 37 and a half tons or 75,000 pounds, to put it in perspective. Oh, good. Yeah. I should have converted it to, like, grams. <laughs> Wait, is That'll that, really put it in perspective. Is that British pounds or uh, imperial pounds? Isn't British pounds a, a money? <laughs> I meant tons. Oh. <laughs> I was like, Michael, I'm not converting weight to monies. <laughs> Different podcast. It's a bank, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they will either. They'll just charge you some fee for asking. <laughs> That's pretty clever, huh? Sending it like that. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling a lot of people in that hidden mail logistics system I was talking about earlier didn't much care for this. <laughs> First off, although Coltharp paid 54 cents per package to the post office, the post office usually paid one and a half cents per pound per package to the Unta Railway Company for transporting packages the 54 miles to Vernal from Watson, Utah. This means the post office was paying 75 cents to ship a package that they had only been paid 54 mm -hmm. cents for. Yeah, so that's a net loss. Uh, this did not even include the cost of the first two railway trips of the journey. No. So that 74 cents that they were paying per package was only for that 54-mile journey with that truck, the no. third leg of the route. <laughs> yeah, not really great for the postal service. To be fair, this was already a complaint considering a lot of Vernal supplies were shipped in via USPS, including canned food, plaster, sugar, flour, all the necessities for the town, but it was bleeding the post office dry. But having 37.5 tons of packages move through at once had another downside. Upon coming to an incline, one of the Unta <laughs> Railway Company trucks, weighed down with several pounds of bricky girth, broke a drivetrain causing it to roll backwards down the hill. <laughs> when the driver tried to brake, the brakes failed under the massive weight, and the truck overturned and caught fire. Because I cut the brakes! <laughs> Fortunately, the driver made it out, but most of the bricks were broken in the accident. Hope they were insured. <laughs> Are you kidding me? They're trying so hard to not pay on this thing? <laughs> Before this shipping nightmare, the postmaster of the Salt Lake City Post Office had told postal workers to inform the second assistant postmaster of any large or unusual packages, but it had not been clearly defined. After the building of the Bank of Vernal, 
Second Assistant Postmaster General Otto Prager defined what was meant by posting, Hereafter, when more than 200 pounds of merchandise, other than perishable matter, are offered for mailing by one sender to one addressee, on the same day, it shall be considered a large or unusual shipment. It sounds like any like group meeting at the beginning of a day, like, next time a customer comes in with two coupons, when it says one coupon <laughs> per person, and postmasters shall, in every instance, before accepting such shipments, notify the second assistant and await instructions. So we don't have a little squabble like this again. <laughs> or is it quabble? Quibble. Anyways. A quick quibble, gruel, maybe that's what it is. So I guess they learned their lesson for being vague. <laughs> As for the bank, it is a registered historical site and a branch of Zion's bank now, but will always be known as the bank that was sent through the mail, even if only partially. Yay! Yay! So other stories were like the whole bank was sent through, or the the numbers were really obscure. I don't know. So I just use the one source. <laughs> so yeah, they might change the number of how many bricks per cent, or, you know, they might just go, wow, a bank, they're just sending buildings through the mail. There was one quote uh, by the postmaster of Salt Lake City that I couldn't find the source for, but it's on the Wikipedia, where they're like, <laughs> the intent of the postal service was not to ship buildings. <laughs> <laughs> Could have fooled me. <laughs> Which was funny. However, the same postmaster uh, went to Woodrow Wilson to get the okay to segregate post offices. Oh. So, not a great look. Yeah, really bad. It's almost like there's a little bit of bad speckled throughout all of history everywhere you turn. Mm -hmm. And by a little bit, I mean very, very bad. Even the fun things can't be fun. Yep, nothing's fun ever because people are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that was great, huh? What would you like to listen to next? You want to see... Oh, we God. have nine-year-old convicted of robbing bank with toy gun. And man buys bank after being told they would not validate his parking ticket. Oh, man. I want to say he bought, like, the parking lot instead of the bank or something. <sighs> you want to say it? You can just say it. You can do anything and you then, want. This is a free the, country. And then the first, the first story, my mind's trying to rack what... So, toy gun, toy guns now must be sold with a blase orange tip that must be at least seven millimeters uh, wide. And I'm trying to think of what. Wait a minute. I'm trying to think of what the. Do you call blaze blase? Do they call it blase? I thought I've it always, was blaze orange. I've always seen it with the 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 tick mark over the e. Oh, I thought it was b l a z e. Yeah, b l a z special e. Oh, I haven't seen special e. Oh. No, no. I get, as maybe I've seen both. Super special. Anyways, maybe people. Yeah. Well, I'm trying I to mean, think of. Who knows? I'm trying to think of what the origin story was for that, but I think it was because a kid was pointing an airsoft gun at a cop, not because he held up a bank. Oh, Michael Gruffy. He's a big mad bear. Uh, give me the guy buying the bank. Yeah. Okay. Man buys bank after being told they would not validate his parking ticket. This is a cute story. Real cute. Please tell me it's like three lines. <laughs> the, guy, the guy parked. He needed his parking validated. They wouldn't validate it. He bought the bank. End of story. <laughs> he saw that the bank was on sale on Craigslist and he went and bought the <laughs> bank. <laughs> they said they couldn't validate anymore because they were no longer a bank. <laughs> 
Okay, so this story is a pretty popular one. Man gets treated poorly, ends up being rich, buys bank that treated him poorly as revenge. It's also a story that, according to Snopes, has yet to be proven true. Oh, <laughs> Hey, I didn't do it. Snopes did. My bad. <laughs> I'm going off of Snopes, by the way. I'm not going to go through every single thing and try to find something that's true when most stuff is clickbait. Anyways, the true story, the one that I'm actually telling, which is a true story, even Snopes says so. <laughs> The true story took place in October of 1988 in Spokane, Washington, after a man by the name of John Barrier decided to cash a check at Old National Bank after visiting his broker. Old National Bank! <laughs> Barrier, who was originally from Texas and moved to Spokane in the 1950s, made a living buying old buildings in the area and fixing them up. Good for him. That's a hobby. That's better than just, oh, everything's abandoned, but I'm not going to buy it. I'm just going to build something new. Oh. On this day in 1988, Barrier parked his pickup and was told by the valet that there was a 60-cent parking ticket for his spot, but it would be free if he got the ticket validated. For anyone who resides in society and has a pulse, this is a normal thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate when I'm in society and I don't have a pulse. It's the worst. <laughs> Those are ghosts, Michael. Ghosts <laughs> are allowed to be in society. <laughs> no, my buddy Bernie does it all the time. Weekend at Bernie's, Jesus. Oh my god! <laughs> Don't look at me like that. My my brain immediately went to Bernie Madoff. I'm like, no, I'm sure he's still dead. <laughs> he's a ghost. Yeah, he's hella ghosty. That's why he doesn't answer his phone oh, anymore. Huh. <laughs> so off he went to the old National Bank, now the U.S. Bank of Washington, like he had done for the past 30 years of his life in Spokane. After cashing his check with the teller, he asked if she can validate his parking ticket. Now, I think we can all agree, except maybe those high and mighty notaries, that picking up a stamp and pressing it to a piece of paper would have cost this woman zero dollars. But of course, this is not what happened. It takes nothing to put a stamp on something. Ink is very expensive, Brenna. I don't know if you've looked at ink <laughs> prices lately. Uh, yeah, but and then, Michael, Michael, this is the 1980s. It was a booming time for ink. And then you have ink wearing... everywhere. It literally spurted out of the streets and everybody dipped their fountain pens in it and they drew beautiful curvy things and then you have the wear and tear on the stamp every <laughs> every two three hundred stamps you got to get a new one no this was a booming time for rubber trees <laughs> <laughs> they were growing in the ink it was great it was so easy and convenient <laughs> okay it turns out since barrier was wearing his usual shabby clothes that he usually worked in because he fixed up buildings a stamp was going to be a problem <laughs> According to Barrier, after looking him over, she told me the bank only validated parking tickets when a customer made a transaction and that cashing a check wasn't a transaction. Oh, good for her. Once again, this is a stamp we're talking about. Considering his decades of patronage, he figured the teller was surely mistaken and requested the manager. But after also giving him a once-over, the manager also decided to be a big old doo-doo face and decline the teensy-weensy little stamp. That's when Barrier exclaimed, fine, if you don't need me, I don't need you, and instead requested to close his account. He then took the check they cut him down to the street to the Seafirst Bank, and that check was for how much do you think in 1988 money? 1988 money, uh, uh Spokane, like, I don't know, 1.2 mil. Okay. That's close. Yeah, it's a million bucks. It was a million bucks. 
And that's what you said, and it is right. (laughs) Uh, When asked for a comment about the incident, the U.S. Bank of Washington area manager, Phyllis Campbell, confirmed the story, saying, Every customer should be treated as a guest. Unfortunately, this incident didn't happen that way. (laughs) That's the manager being like, I gotta say something. Oh my god, how embarrassing. As for John Barrier, Seafirst was more than happy with the new customer and his dough and featured him in a nice little newsletter to show their appreciation. And they validated his parking. <laughs> I, I'm sure that everybody at that uh, other bank will probably validate now from now on. Uh, honestly, the first thing I do is I walk in and say, hey, do you validate parking because I look like a bum? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know I'm not wearing clothes, but will you please validate my parking? Hey, now? I got a big fat check to the first person that validates my parking. <laughs> <laughs> I got a coupon for two-for-one steak dinners for the first person to validate my parking. In Barry's words, if you have one dollar in a bank or one million, I think they owe you the courtesy of stamping your parking ticket. (laughs) Amen, brother. Uh, Side note today, that one million dollars would be worth two point, well, let's say two million two hundred six thousand one hundred eighty-five dollars and forty-eight cents. Yeah, but Thank what, you, inflation calculator. <laughs> but what's the 60 cent uh, uh, ticket worth now? Oh, God. Okay, so over, if one... A little, little over two times? So, like, what? A buck, buck, buck 30, buck, buck 40? Yeah, buck, buck 32, exactly, in my head. It's not a buck 32 anymore, I can guarantee it. <laughs> buck 32 and a half. <laughs> All right, are you ready for... Yeah, whatever, get it over with. Oh, yeah, yeah, because that was a lie. I was like, why are you so... <laughs> Yeah, this is actually the my least favorite story, just because... It's just dumb. <laughs> Nine-year-old convicted of robbing bank with toy gun. Now, this story's gonna be short and not so sweet. On February 25th, 1981, the Manhattan New York Bank for Savings was robbed. The culprit? A nine-year-old boy. According to the reports, the boy, who is referred to as Robert, had a toy gun in the bank and was said to have told the teller to give him money. The teller did, and the boy walked out with $118, equivalent to $335 today. Now, some people probably think that was pretty dumb. Other people think the teller was just doing her job. What is for sure, though, is that there are way too many people on the internet willing to talk about how much research they do on how to rob banks successfully. I cannot tell you, because there's a... Somebody wanted to do an AMA on Reddit for Robert as an adult now. And people are like, well, it's really dumb that this, like, the amount of people are like, well, I've done a lot of research on this because I've thought about it a lot, and if this happens, they have to do this. Everyone's a pro. <laughs> exactly. Everybody is a pro in a past tense situation they've never been in. <laughs> Anyways, when his father and grandparents had told him about the incident they saw on the news, Robert told them that he had been playing at the bank with his cap gun, and a woman gave him money. After that, his father had him do what he thought was the right thing and surrendered to the police. Instead of the old sitcom ending where law enforcement says something like, What? A nine-year-old kid with a cap gun? Ha, you crazy kid. Well, you did the right thing. Just don't do it again. You know, because it's a little kid and they'd be like, Aw, you He got seven years for armed robbery. (laughs) The boy was instead charged with second-degree attempted robbery and first-degree robbery. And just like the headline says, was found guilty. A nine-year-old boy with a toy was judged to have held up a bank teller on purpose, or in the words of Manhattan Family Court Judge Peggy Davis, intentionally committed acts which would have been criminal had he been 
16 or older. It's almost like age limits for crimes were put there for a reason. Huh. No. <laughs> yeah, right. Because nine-year-olds, nine-year-olds definitely have the the sense of, oh, I'm doing something wrong that's punishable by jail. Robert's lawyer did not deny that the child committed the crime, but instead insisted that the real culprit was. What do you think? The, uh, the cap gun maker. That's right, Michael Hogan's heroes. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Well, that and all the other TV he apparently watched at home. It'll rot your brain. <laughs> According to the lawyer, the child was a victim of circumstance, being raised by a divorced father and his grandparents who all allowed him to watch too much TV. Adam 12, The Rockard Files, and yes, Hogan's Heroes were all Robert watched for hours a day, according to the lawyer. There's no guns in Hogan's Heroes. I don't think. Don't they, like, go and save, like, stop crime or well, something? I thought, they, I, thought, I thought they were in prison. They were thinking of a different TV show. Why are they Maybe heroes? Maybe we'll cut this. <laughs> <laughs> and when he would play, he would act out what he saw. It was a game to him. One thing to remember when looking back on something like this, which is covered back in our toys episode, is that orange tips were not required on toy guns until 1992, meaning if this kid repeated something he heard a character on a cop show say, it would not necessarily be obvious to the teller that the child was just goofing around on account of the gun you know, maybe it didn't look so fake. Anyways, the assistant corporation counsel, Judith Levy, recommended one of three punishments. Supervision, treatment, or confinement. According to a United Press International article, confinement meant the child would be sent to a reformatory, whereas under supervision meant he would report to a probation officer. Which I guess means he would have to, I don't know, have proof of employment and drug tests? Sounds like a halfway house for juvenile delinquents. <laughs> i have absolutely no clue what a child would have to prove to their probation officer uh well you gotta pee clean yeah that's... uh you can't leave the the county uh, can't buy a gun can't buy... <laughs> oh my god do they bar him from the toy store <laughs> he's sitting there just like carving his chicken nuggets on guns like they won't let me have one that's what we're getting at. This is absolutely ludicrous. This is ridiculous. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I couldn't imagine. What's the year imagine. on this? 1986? 1981. 1981? Yeah. Uh, this is ridiculous. Yeah, this is... I couldn't imagine. Last but not least, the child's parents were charged with neglect. And due to the super secret nature of juvenile crime, I have no clue how that turned out. In the end, the kid had spent some of the money after his crazy getaway. On a um, better cap gun. What, what, what do you think he bought? Uh, so... No, he... Definitely spent it on Mad Magazines and Bubblegum. <laughs> Clothes. Just some food and a glow-in-the-dark watch. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, like, he was just a little kid. You know, could you imagine? So, what I what I try to do is put my shoe, myself in that kid's shoes when I was a kid. You know, you're alone. Like, you're lonely. You're just doing that pew, 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 playing with your gun. You're walking around town because, I guess, that is one of the things, like, the parent, the parents being held for neglect like your kid probably shouldn't be roaming around manhattan unattended but like you know you do that little pew pew and then you're at the bank and then you look at the lady and you just play around like give me some money because you saw it and then all of a sudden she gives you money and you're like wow i've never seen 118 dollars before no that's, i'm gonna go buy some things that's not the problem i have an issue with it's <laughs> how the sentencing and the 
judicial system work because yeah because think about it from the teller's point of view if that gun was oh, real yeah, yeah. I don't, i'm not gonna piss off that's the, kid. the thing when people say on reddit they were like oh what an idiot she should have known and once again nobody ever considers they think everything that is a law now was a law at all times that they ever learned about like no you couldn't actually always tell the difference <laughs> but you know, that's also their job. You get fired if you become, try to be a hero or something. Like, you're supposed to just comply. So, that's not a problem. The kid doing the thing, I don't think was a problem because you can see a kid getting swept up like this. It's, yeah, the judicial system. Thinking that this child of nine years old intended to rob a bank that day. <laughs> Anyways. Yep, that's, that was that. Oh, good. Hey, we're all losers today. <laughs> yeah, some more than others. Losing's losing, I think. <laughs> Do you have any uh, small ones, anything of note? Uh, I don't know. There was so many serious ones, and I'm like, uh, yeah. I think there's some that like I'm going to do a big story on. Yeah, I, I touched on the Zimbabwean dollar uh, in, in one of my stories, mm-hmm. and like, I don't know, there wasn't like any single one like root cause for it except they just kept printing money but uh i didn't know that it didn't stop i thought they stopped making the zimbabwean dollar like oh. back in 2010 oh no uh the, so like the thing is uh the inflation rate in zimbabwe was over 540 percent in february 2020 oh my god and due to covid reached a peak of around 675 percent in march oh my god so either they're still printing it or they're still keeping tabs on the zimbabwean dollar so that's not a good way well you know what you know the thing is like you could say that's not a good way to run an economy um yeah but can we exactly say ours is a good way to run the economy (laughs) like come on (laughs) Just because, I don't know, we can say ours, our inflation isn't as high and whatever. Does that mean we're better than them? I don't think so. Yeah, and... Uh, j- Can't just, be a quadrillionaire here. To put it in perspective, if you had one Zimbabwean dollar, uh, you're looking at less than two-tenths of a penny. Point yeah, but... zero zero two. There's a lot of crypto out there worth that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why crypto, I can buy a lot of that money. <laughs> So, actually, you know what? I'm not going to talk about any of the ones, um, but I will suggest, I know our job is to do all the research and bring you stories, but if you want to really depress yourself, and I mean, you know, you know, you want to you really learn have some a bad things, time. have a real bad time, uh, Google bank scandals in 2020, because 2020 alone had the trials of multiple bank scandals including wells fargo goldman sachs uh jp morgan chase they have a couple different things that everybody's being held accountable for and if you really want to be disappointed in how things are you know regulated go ahead and read that stop being a bummer <laughs> oh shut up do you well, have anything you else to talk about it later <laughs> no because i don't want to talk about it at all i'd rather stick my head in the sand do you have anything else <laughs> No, I don't have anything else, you big person who is here and exists. Okay, good. Well, thank you all for listening. Have a good one. Bye. For show ideas, inaccuracies, or general comments, you can email us at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. 
Intro and outro music provided by The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void. Found on the Free Music Archive, CCBY License. Thank you for listening.